0: How do you live your life eyes wide open it is a learned discipline it can be taught it can be practiced i'll summarize very briefly hold yourself accountable for every moment every thought every detail see beyond your fears recognize your assumptions harness your internal strength silence your internal critic correct your misconceptions about luck and about success accept your strengths and your weaknesses and understand the difference. Open your hearts to your bountiful blessings, your fears, your critics, your heroes, your villains. They are your excuses, rationalizations, shortcuts, justifications, your surrender. They are fictions you perceive as reality. Choose to see through them, choose to let them go. You are the creator of your reality. With that empowerment comes complete responsibility. I chose to step out of fear's tunnel into terrain uncharted and undefined. I chose to build there a blessed life.
1: Some Sophia from Isaac Litsky A former child actor who became physically blind, overcame great despair, and found a way to see the all, live a very inspirational and successful life. Definitely Sophia
0: Words. How terrible is wisdom when it brings no profit to the wise?
1: Alas, people want to remain blind today because it's easier to reduce the world to good and bad guys like the Argons want in their divide and conquer machinations. Invent heroes and enemies instead of taking responsibility for both their shadow and daemon. People continue to seek some savior instead of mining for their inner Christ. Slowly sacrifice freedom and individuality for a little security and certainty. Those who would give up essential
0: liberty to purchase a little temporary safety deserve neither liberty nor safety. Benjamin Franklin
1: So many blind people today in the Black Iron Prison. Reminds of the story of the captured Nazi after the war as shown in Eric Hoffer's book, True Believer. Who? When asked why he had joined Hitler's party, he responded, I wanted to be free from freedom. Monsieur so many blind today, bootlickers and simping catamites of the establishment. Don't you see the elite don't care about you? Never have since the dawn of civilization. That to them, you're a slave meant to be cucked and culled so they can hoard all the resources. And the lead are but the continuation of wickedness in high places. That's not a conspiracy theory, but a fact. A fact the ancient Gnostics warned the world 2,000 years ago. A fact that remains today as the establishment tells you to cower in your hobbit holes and obey their whims. All the while they continue to reimagine the world in their twisted image and feed off your very essence. Pay no attention to that man behind the curtain! The great and has spoken! Who are you? Oh, I I, I am the great and powerful
2: Wizard of Oz.
1: But not you who have come to the virtual Alexandria. Like Isaac Litsky, you are finally living with eyes wide open. Even as the world hates you for this, as Jesus says in the Gospel of Juan. Jesus also says in the Gospel of Philip... When a blind man and one who sees are both together in darkness, they are no different from one another. When the light comes, then he who sees will see the light, and he who is blind will remain in darkness.
0: Try these on. Look, you crazy mother. Put these on. Hey! Stay away from me! I'm telling you, you dumb son of it! <laughs>
1: Your eyes are open and you see the light of true meaning as you leave Plato's cave. And when it comes to these insane Gnostic times, you agree with Otto von Bismarck, who said, never believe anything until it is officially denied.
0: The more you tighten your grip, Tark, the more star systems will slip through your finger.
1: Your eyes are wide open And you want freedom more than anything because you realize it's a natural state of any authentic human. And any authentic human is devoid of fear or worry or egoic desire. It's so obvious and you know as well that any enlightenment, any gnosis, any contact with the divine requires you to be completely free. As Eric Davis wrote in Nomad Codes, The Neoplatonist ascent through the spheres, the Gnostic's sudden awakening, the desert monk's rejection of the lan vital, is not simply a philosophical error or the mark of patriarchy, but is fired by an intensely lucid yearning of the highest of goals. Liberation. I'm going to show them a world without you, a world without rules and controls, without borders or boundaries, a world where anything is possible. Simple as that, and that's why you arrived to the Virtual Alexandria. Welcome you modern day Tom Sawyers, your mind not for rent to any god or government. Welcome to Aeon Bite, where you will finally find the means to reach your full potential. Become that authentic human.
0: There is nothing noble in
1: being superior to your fellow man. True nobility is being superior to your former self. And I, your host, Miguel Connor, will provide the specific rituals and exercises in 21 for your transformation. Stay tuned and more to come. All
2: right, all right,
1: all right. Oh, Christ. Face and his thug rapey angels sure make matters confusing down here in the Konoma as they try to keep most of humanity blind, don't they? Even mysticism seems opaque with all this Karen scientism and Medusa mass media and garroting orthodox religions.
0: Ernest Hemingway once wrote, the world is a fine place and worth fighting for. I agree with the second part.
1: But mysticism is as clear as it's always been if we simply frame it with modern culture and even sound science. And get Jungian on your ass Past guests like Anthony Peake Gary Lockman Chris Knowles Gordon White And Alex Sakides Have showcased this In this Eternal Now Our astral guests will provide too A clear view of mysticism In modern times How to approach it And how to take a deep dive Into making continual contact With the transcendental
0: it is no. the experience of the eternity. Yeah. The experience of the eternal. That's right? what you are. you are. Yes. I would say. That, that whatever eternity is, is here right now. Or nowhere else.
1: And that is Anthony Tyler, who incarnates at the virtual Alexandria to discuss his new book, Dive Manual, Empirical Investigations of Mysticism. A fascinating work that melts scholarship, mythology, inspirational autobiography, and history to present a map on how you can easily create your own map to a tailored mystic journey. Anthony's style is similar to that of James True, so you know you're getting some bigly gnosis. You know it and you know that the highest of goals is liberation. You want your eyes wide open and you're done with villains and saviors. Want to take responsibility for everything you are in all your lifetimes, which will unleash all of your potential, midwife your mysticism and make contact with higher realms as you're not held down by the counterfeit spirit the Archons tied to your soul's testicles. God isn't for you, Lenny. God is for men who have no use for freedom. You'll kill any Buddha on the road, whether he's wearing a mask or not. And as AWOL Nation sang, you'll kill all your heroes. You'll never ever sell out again. What we do in life echoes in eternity. You either die a hero or you live long enough to see yourself become the villain. You want to be free and you know that's not selfish. Just as you know that part of freedom is knowing yourself and being even more liberated by that. As June Singer wrote in her seminal work, A Gnostic Book of Ours, It serves no purpose to conceal who we are or what we know. Knowing ourselves and being willing to stand for who we are makes life authentic. If we can do this, then we can move freely through life because there's no dissonance between our sense of our own nature and the way we behave. And as Carl Jung wrote... Free will is doing gladly and freely that which one must do. Do you know what the secret of life is?
2: No, what?
1: This. Your finger? One thing. Just one thing. You stick to that and everything else don't mean shit. That's great, but what's the one thing? That's
2: what you gotta figure out.
1: Of course, keep in mind what Rudolf Steiner warned. For every mystic step forward, we must take three moral steps forward. Compassion is essential for any divine revelation, for any growth, and for yes, any true freedom even as we run with those searching for the truth and avoid those who have found it. However. I would counter Steiner, Steiner, Steiner and say that freedom begets expanded consciousness and expanded consciousness begets more empathy. Hence the myth of the demiurge and his lack of sensitivity. Hence all those idiots shackled by mind-forged manacles you see on Twitter and Facebook and the news. So many blind today and you can tell who they are beyond their desperate thirst for villains and saviors. They also show little kindness, they're so bitter as they're drunk on self-righteousness and they're puking their own shadow every time they post online. If you do anything wrong in your life Duh, and I find out about it, I'm going to try to take everything away from you. And I don't care when I find out. It could be today, tomorrow, 15, 20 years from now. If I find out, you're
2: fucking, duh, finished.
1: Don't be like them. Expand your consciousness, and you'll love your enemies and help the least of your brothers. All in a state of freedom. Welcome to these Gnostic times, this Philip K. Dick world. In this age of Hermes Beyond rituals I'll speak more about Hermes in the future Probably after the next show After we celebrate our 14 year anniversary Stay tuned Stay awake The best is coming from us Sons and daughters of the whore Sophia The best is coming Most of all Keep writing your own gospel and living your own myth. Let us do the interview with Anthony Tyler.
0: Fear fills the void at all costs, passing off what you dread for what you know, offering up the worst in place of the ambiguous, substituting assumption for reason. Fear replaces the unknown with the awful. Now fear is self-realizing. When you face the greatest need to look outside yourself and think critically, fear beats a retreat deep inside your mind, shrinking and distorting your view, drowning your capacity for critical thought with a flood of disruptive emotions. When you face a compelling opportunity to take action, fear lulls you into inaction, enticing you to passively watch its prophecies fulfill themselves.
1: This is the AM Byte interview, and with us, we have the pleasure of being joined by Anthony Tyler to discuss his book, Empirical Investigations of Mysticism. Anthony, how you doing, and thanks for coming on the show.
2: I'm doing real well. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here, so thanks for having me. It's going to be a good conversation.
1: Oh, I would agree. I really enjoyed your book. Um, as I told you, uh, I read it about two or three days, and it's been buzzing in my head, and I guess I do have the... The the benefit, when I read a really good book, I can ask the author things about the book and share his stuff at the same time. <laughs> so yeah, sometimes, yeah, I think I have the best job in the world, and I learn so much from uh, great creators like you and others. So hallelujah, great Gnostic yeah. times. And uh, with us too, we are joined by the Moondog himself. Vance, how are you doing?
0: Oh, I'm pretty good. On this lazy weekend. Uh, this subject is going to be of particular interest to me because as you know I consider myself a mystic and I've had my own experiences so I'm excited to hear about this.
1: Good deal. Well Anthony let's talk about your book. I guess um, what kind of genre would you classify? In? Because again it's it's a nonlinear book even though it takes the reader on an incredible journey. It is full of scholarship, it's full of your own philosophy and insight through life and a lot of great data. How would you classify this book?
2: Uh, That's a good question. I mean, if I really had to pick something, I would say either, you know, maybe like philosophy or experimental psychology, maybe self-help, although I try to steer away from terms like self-help and new age, etc., um i uh i i appreciate you guys um uh giving me the compliments you know especially it uh, buzzing around in your head that's pretty cool to hear always so uh um but if anything i think um maybe the best uh way to wrap your head around it for any listeners is i almost kind of tried to write it like um a traditional what you would call quote unquote book of shadows you know there's always these old school grimoires that are um that's the uh, eclectic esotericists and and pagans and whoever else were writing and um that's a motif that's pretty archetypal and is uh carried on into our modern day like carl jung himself uh, kept a personal journal of uh, his mystical encounters that he called the black book which is yet to be released but um fragments of it have been released through uh what they call the red book and um and so, yeah, it's uh, this kind of like grimoire, Book of Shadows type thing. I was also uh, pretty inspired by the existential horror of uh, the works of H.P. Lovecraft, et cetera. So and he's got that whole horror vibe. So kind of tried to toe that line a little bit. I, I wanted to make something uh, something like a modern grimoire, although that title is a little tongue in cheek. Um, I uh, definitely see a lot of the there's empirical data it's empirical investigations of mysticism so i'm trying to kind of cut through the the dogma and superstition while giving uh this this whole plethora of comparative religion it's you know it's due because there's there's so much worth in there and especially in today's modern society we tend to throw the baby out with the bathwater, and that's it's wholeheartedly unnecessary because uh uh, comparative religion and science both have different things to offer. And while I think that more and more people are beginning to discuss that sentiment, um, I'm a little surprised to hear how few people are willing to, um, try and navigate that sentiment and actually put the two together, science. And I kind of tend to shy away from the word religion. That's why I, I like to use like, uh, mysticism or divination more so. Yeah. So it's a good starting off point.
1: Yeah, yeah, well said. And yeah, for the audience, I believe Jung's Black Book is coming out, most of it this summer. So I would say the timing couldn't be better, considering uh, we live in such uh, where shadow projection seems to be everywhere in this world right now with the situation. So let's talk about things that happened to you that made you into you. Again, the book isn't linear. We get to this journey and we keep finding more about yourself. But uh I see uh basically Alaska. It's where you grew up. And for some reason, I see someone who was sort of crushed between the weight of being on meds as a kid and then discovering uh, drugs later on.
2: Right. Yeah. I, um, I think I have, uh, a fairly interesting personal story. Um, I definitely went through all sorts of different things, uh, from, you know, growing up in Alaska, uh, from an early age, you know, to, things just happened to everybody growing up. For me, it was, uh, it was my parents divorcing at an early age. And I also had, I played some football and had some concussions. So I think that might have messed my equilibrium, my emotional equilibrium up a little bit. And, Ultimately, by the time I was 16 or so, I started taking um, anti-anxiety, you know, the, the, the high-strength, uh, what you call benzodiazepines, and then uh, the SSRIs, the antidepressants. And then when those weren't uh, working as much as my doctor or the parents would have liked, uh, they put an antipsychotic in there as well. No psychotic diagnosis, just to, <laughs> as a disclaimer, but uh, it was, you know, to help strengthen the other medications. And so I had this whole concoction happening and then there's even, um, blood pressure medication on top of it. And, uh, and then I went to military school and uh, I talk about that briefly in the book and that catalyzed a lot within me because I, uh, it was not, not really a military oriented type of person, although I have my own disciplines. Uh, but it really forced me to explore the inner workings of my mind a lot more and I don't say that lightly because uh th- that military school w- through my own readings and meditations were uh the that was the first place I discovered auto hypnosis and other things and it took me a, a little while to even realize what that was what I was doing but uh so after military school I got off the medication and started doing my own thing and uh it seems that if you know my best guess from what the evidence shows uh, there's some sort of um existential pressure i guess you could say and once i stopped taking the medication it all just the the bottle uncorked and pretty quickly i started having these uh, really fantastic dreams and uh fantastic fantastic goal maybe because while they uh, they were not overtly horrifying like nightmares they were the, they had an existential crisis that they were uh, trying to explain to me and so without mincing words too much to give the the reader um or the listener uh some bullet points uh right before I graduated military school I had this dream um about this girl who is, a, is still a good friend of mine. She's practically a saint. She's a great person. But uh, it was really interesting because it was, I had a dream about her a few months before I met her. And when I met her, it was very much the same as the dream with just m- minor uh, details, like nuance differences, but I, everything was exactly the same. It was meeting at a carnival, essentially. And that opened a whole cornucopia for me because after getting off the medication, I, uh, I wasn't like a loose cannon or anything, but I felt like, again, is uh, symptomatic of these recurring dreams I had. I felt as if there was all sorts of, uh, existential phenomena, I guess you could say, coming out of me. And it was, it was a personal crisis. Um, I didn't know how to really handle a lot of the things coming at me. Like I, being medicated for so long, it felt like I had forgotten. It it seemed like I had forgotten what it felt like to feel anything. So there's this sense of disassociation and depersonalization, which becomes chronic and clinical. And it's not just um, not just some sort of teenage angst or something. We're starting to deal with uh, serious um, I don't know, issues. Is kind of a n- not very descriptive term, but I guess you could say that. Yeah. So um, I started looking at these dreams more, and and i found that um you know there really wasn't enough uh clinical data to really give me what i was looking for uh, in terms of until i got to Jung. and when i started looking into uh carl Jung, it it really opened up this whole and see i was only like 18 at the time so uh this is the very beginning of it all and it it opened up my mind to this um this dichotomy of um Faith and existential horror, uh, the, the crossroads of the two, and what kind of role those two concepts play in our personal adaptations and our adaptation as a species, and dreams are a quintessential role in that. Um, faith is kind of an uh, antiquated term, although I don't shy away from using it, uh, but I like to use the term heuristic more. Uh, I, I don't know who coined it, but it's uh it's... It's a scientific psychological unit, uh, essentially, uh, and it describes the trial and error approach to what you could call a metaphorical truth. Uh, like the, the easiest example that I've heard tossed around before is that so many people think that porcupines shoot their quills at you, and in fact they don't, but it doesn't really hurt anyone to think that a porcupine shoots its quills at you, and you might be better off for thinking that. You might stay further away. And yeah, there's a lot of people and there's merit to this idea. There's a lot of people that uh, look at religion in this way and uh, spiritualism in general. So while I don't want to discredit, I'm not saying that this is where the trail ends with uh, with heuristics and archetypes and clinical psychology, but this is definitely where the trail begins. And I think that too many people, when they're going down these spiritual approaches, uh, and doctrines, they kind of, you know, people, for some reason, I guess it's just human nature. They tend to try and pick one or the other science or, or metaphysics. And it, it, they were created to be one and the same, first of all. So, uh, this, this split that the schism that we have, um, in our society and culture and the way we approach existential and excuse me, existentialism in and of itself is, uh, is problematic. And that's one of the main things I try to address in the book. And, you know, from there, looking into dream analysis, I started writing down my dreams, start doing more research. And uh, this brings me through rabbit holes, like, um, to experimenting with psychedelics, you know, uh, like psilocybin and LSD. I never smoked any DMT or anything like that. I never tried uh, ayahuasca or peyote, but... I definitely experimented and um uh you know without we could go into detail I certainly don't mind that but for the sake of brevity we can just say that there's some very wild existential experiences and interestingly enough it seemed to open up things like for example UFOs during psychedelic experiences uh, UFO sightings um which obviously should be taken with an extremely huge grain of salt but then afterward you um Or for for me, in my case, and even my friends, um, we continued to see those things completely sober. And our brains certainly weren't fried. Uh, You know, we're still fully functioning members of society and plenty articulate. So what happened? Are we just more aware? And I'm not even saying aliens, just for the record. Um, Might be some sort of government craft. but. there's there's weird stuff in the sky in Alaska. Uh, that is most certain. Yeah, I i bet money in Vegas on that. Uh, unexplainable things for sure. I've seen things take 90 degree angles in the sky flying faster than a shooting star. It's it's wild. So um makes you wonder. It makes you wonder if uh we would have noticed those things before the uh the seeing them on the psychedelic, or uh if it just made us more aware or if these things are somehow um because you know, on that note, while I do think that probably in my case these things were government craft, it it led me to beckon, or uh, it beckoned the question whether or not some of these things, like unexplainable phenomena in general, uh, might have some sort of projection process. And and you, once I started having that idea, I found stumbled into more of Jung's work uh, regarding some of his um, I don't know what you call it. um fringe type material where he's discussing the, uh, psychological, the potential psychological projection processes of, uh, UFOs. So, and then I look into, I've never had many, uh, sleep paralysis experiences. I had two when I was a kid and they weren't all that noteworthy, but, uh, sleep paralysis and the shadow people involved with that is another uh, metaphysical phenomena. That's very much like, is the cornerstone of, uh, of demonology and a lot of spiritualism as we know it today. Uh, so, so sleep paralysis is very interesting as well. And it, uh, belies more, um, uh, tangible data of what you could call like a specter or an entity. And, you know, first we're just laying these things out. Uh, we're, we're not really considering yet what these things are, uh, whether or not they're sentient or, uh, merely autonomous, um, but what we're looking at is the phenomenology of it. And not only do these things have some sort of projection process, whether it's dreams or uh, sleep paralysis or other things that I go into in the book. Uh, and I think that uh, these types of entities, quote unquote, uh, many of them uh, do interact with you in your dreams specifically, uh, especially in, in things that I go into in the book. And I don't know where I heard this, but it's always been this old saying that I've heard around. I don't know why I heard it first rather but uh that when you make eye contact with something in a dream it tends to uh suggest that there's something on the other side of those eyes you know the old adage eyes being the the window to the soul or whatever so so in this book overall i guess you could say to put a cap on this, this little spiel so far um is an attempt to um Look at the tangible aspects of mysticism, the things that there's certain things that you just science isn't really going to be able to touch yet, uh, like the existence of uh, like verifying reincarnation or something like that we 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 can't do that yet, but what we can do is analyze dreams and look into the other practical applications for. These uh, these old divination tools that so many people today call superstitious, like uh, tarot and astrology and numerology. Uh, granted, these things um, have tropes associated with them, and they shouldn't be taken at face value. And I don't recommend anyone just pick up some New Age book on the subject, do your research, and find out where your research is coming from. But these all these tools are, can be very effective, and they have hypnotic properties. Uh, and capability. So I was trying to lay a roadmap a little bit. This is the kind of book that I wish I had when I was going through the experiences that I talk about in the book. And I I never found one, you know, I found things, found inspiration through people like the Freemason, Manly P. Hall and Carl Jung, but I never found a book like, uh, like this one that I wrote. So I just, I kind of wanted to make, um, a roadmap is, I don't have all the answers by any stretch of the imagination, but I wanted to take the, what the data shows and just kind of point people in the best direction that I could because I have a uniquely, um, I, I have a unique uh, relationship to esoteric material because of the experiences I've had, more so than a lot of people.
1: Well said, and a good summary of your work. So much to unpack, but I think uh, you hit it on the head, a lot of things, that uh, For example, my UFO experience was exactly as yours, Anthony, and it was during I was doing a lot of ayahuasca ceremonies and the same thing up in the sky in the middle of bumfuck Egypt. And (laughs) uh, yes, I I can relate 100%. And there's certain things that really informed your life, sort of uh, pivot moments. And I think maybe sometimes the audience needs to try to look at their own pivot moments, those places you say you talk about the dive. I think in one part of your book, you say, sometimes when we're already sinking, we must learn to dive. And there are those moments that really inform us. Like you mentioned it, but one of them was uh, your meeting and dream and reality of Ramona. Before you even talked about Dante, I was thinking, oh, my God, that's his
2: Beatrice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, and uh, the 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 dream experiences that I was having... Where e- echoes of what Jung would call the anima, this whole dualism of the psyche um, and the experience, the human experience itself, uh, the the anima being that feminine nature of the 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 man's soul um the man's experience and the animus being uh the woman's uh masculine. And it's not so much an emphasis on any sort of um sexual genders or physical orientation, so much as it is more like um uh, considering the relationship of the uh the proton and electron and neutron. We're dealing with archetypal scientific forces that um are so so intensely uh they're they're psychological in many cases, but they, uh, they're they so penetrative that they get down to the heart of uh, our adaptation itself. And um, in many cases, um, such as I don't know, it, when considering archetypes, it's hard to say what came first, the chicken or the egg. And that's kind of a five million dollar question. Like, uh, do we have these ideas that permeate so deeply uh, that they Are reflected in our biology, or do we have a biology that's so necessary that it penetrates into our psyche? It's probably a little bit of both, but I don't think anyone can say what those ratios are to be exact.
1: Yeah, I like how you write in your book archetypal symbols are not literal aspects of the brain or mind, they are diagnostic tactics to help determine the dynamic, narrow. Phenomenology of the human. <laughs> yeah, couldn't say that for a
2: second. Hey, I still get tongue-tied saying that. <laughs> <sometimes>. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, and that that's a really good point, uh, because so I think um uh well let me let me stay on topic a little bit without jumping all over the place. So um in terms of uh what I was experiencing in the dream, um well, in traditional alchemy, uh, the, there's the whole idea of um, transmutation and purification, and so many times throughout history, alchemists were considered, you know, devil worshippers and summoning demons. <laughs> yeah, and I suppose that some of that is probably true, but uh, the the reason that there was such a fear of that is because these alchemists were so interested in uh the impurities, not because they wanted to glorify them, but because they wanted to eradicate them. And uh that's something that uh Jung and Manley P. Hall talk about quite a bit. This seems to be a cornerstone of evolutionary psychology, whether or not you want to get mystical. And it's this idea of the confrontation of what you would call the shadow in the psyche. And that's all of which uh is processed by your mind, but not readily uh, available you know, because there's, there's only so much you can focus on at once. And that's why there's this separation of conscious and unconscious, the conscious being that which deals with the world and the unconscious being the reservoir for it all. So, um, uh, from there, you know, I think, um, with the, for, uh, a first step for anybody in general, you know, before you pick up tarot cards or look into astrology, I do recommend just keeping a dream journal and starting to analyze that because your dreams will be once you under, once you look at it the right way and you look at what type of what kinds of archetypes are found within the dream, uh, you start to realize that it's actually pretty transparent and these things are very. Very loud messages, and all we have to do is just kind of pay attention to them, and we start to develop these bridges uh, of communication, and we start this uh, psychological purification process, uh, this transmutation, and, uh, and and you know sometimes you know because this gets into well what's good and what's evil and what's in between uh, if we're given some sort of credence to the validity of uh, entities. Uh, whether or not we know w- what all that word "entity" means, um, then we have to um, uh, we have to consider uh, exactly how they're affecting us. And um, when we start to integrate these things, see, this is a fine line. This is why you have to write a book about it, and why I say I don't have all okay. the answers because uh, uh, it's everyone's own individual journey. And you have to be willing to take some risks. You have to be able to give yourself a cold, hard look in the mirror, metaphorically, and see what it is that um, really needs to change about you. And some of those things are going to be alienated aspects of yourself that uh, aren't evil. You know, it's like the wounded child within us all. There's there's a reality to that. But some of those things are going to be downright nefarious, especially uh, you know, given the person. Uh some of those things are gonna just cause a lot of grief and have um no real redeemable value and then some of those things are going to be like what you could kind of call our platonic ideals, and that's where you could get into the the trees of life and the tree and the tree of death trees of life and death.
1: yeah, we definitely want to get into some of your amazing concepts, like the ones you just mentioned, but uh going back to sort of turning points in your life, I really was touched by well you you moved to California and you found yourself basically without money without food uh thank God you had food to feed your cat and <laughs> you're sort of uh you came to uh you came to a turning point maybe you want to expand, but uh something again your book had a lot of synchronicities of what's going on with me. But you mentioned Chris McCandles and uh, his book, uh, or the book Into the Wild, which was made uh, into a movie by Sean Penn. And uh, for some reason, it really, I could relate to your story, and it sparked something in me, why this movie has really stayed with me for so long. And I was thinking, well, why? I mean, it was was a good movie, but I think for me it was uh, uh, an individual who really was a, a, sort of an everyday man who was able to really fight for his freedom and uh, join nature, even if at the end nature wasn't very kind to him. Or how does this story affect you? Or why did you bring it
2: up? Uh, well, it's something that always followed me growing up in Alaska. Uh, it was something that you know, people either loved or hated him in Alaska because most really? of the hunters, wow. yeah, why? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> most of the hunters around would just call him a jackass, like oh. That's he, he. He deserved to die because you know he went out on and trouncing around and sticking his nose in places where he shouldn't have. And then there's the other people who genuinely understand it. And um, uh, there's some misconceptions about what actually happened. And um, you, you know he tried to make it across. Uh, he, he was staying in this remote part, uh, and he had to traverse a river uh, to get back to uh civilization and he waited too long didn't realize that there was uh, another way to get uh, to the river or across the river um a few miles up ahead because he went completely he went like well uh, like thorough on steroids man he didn't bring like a i don't i don't believe he brought a compass or a map or anything um he brought like a 22 gauge rifle and some books and like a big bag of dehydrated rice and couple other things like not much at all and uh and um so when he couldn't traverse the river because it was too high um and too rapid he went back and tried to continue foraging um and and surviving and uh biding his time but he started eating uh the roots of eskimo potato um and the the eskimo potato is something that you can eat but it was the seeds rather but evidently, the seeds have a toxin in them, which, uh, once processed will not allow your body to absorb any more nutrients. So you're just going to starve yourself. And that's what happened to him. And he found out too late. And so it, it really is a, a strange story of fate, I guess, because the guy survived the whole time. He even killed a moose with a 22, which is something that's, wow. yeah, almost. Yeah, that's I don't even I don't think anyone knows how he did that, but he has pictures and everything. So the guy um guy really stuck it out out there. Um it's just unfortunate that um a series of events kind of uh worked against him, but I mean for all intents and purposes he did what he sought out to do and at the end of his life, you know, there's there's graffiti that's still there on the abandoned bus where he died in the in the wilderness and um, he really reached some sort of, um, existential refinement. You know, he was very at peace with everything he had done and he he felt like he had accomplished everything he set out to do. And in the long run, his only regret really was that he wasn't able to survive long enough to share his experiences with his family, which I thought was pretty heartfelt. And, um, I think that 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 resonated with me because as a, and I think it's resonated with so many people because it it, it kind of harkens back to uh, Robert Percy's old book, "And in the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance." This this fight in a phone booth kind of uh, existence that we sometimes have to live. And my own metaphor for that dive. And you're talking about these turning points and um, uh, confrontation with yourself is inevitable, and it becomes uh, this fight or flight thing. Which is um I don't know extremely profound because there's nothing that seems to be in your way, you know it's something it's psychological uh it's something mystical, experiential, and I think a lot of people uh once they once they kind of come to that crossroads of analysis uh I suppose you could say they just kind kind of tend to psychologize it and try and medicate it without getting to the heart of the matter. And that's where the real transmutation occurs because we're not, when there's no glorification of masculine or feminine here, this is a, what the alchemists would call a, uh, the, the sacred alchemical marriage of opposites. Uh, we're trying to dive into the unconscious waters of the mind so that we can, um, vanquish the monsters beneath the surface and, um, rescue the, uh, and you know, uncover the buried treasures within.
1: I should have mentioned too. You're talking about dream work and the unconscious. I think it was uh, Gordon White who said, "If you smile at the unconscious, it will smile back at you." There has to be a dialogue. For reasons you've already given, Anthony and I started a dream journal about a year, a year and a half, and it's uh it's made a really big difference. And I would advise the audience. Uh, even just as cool as the hypnagogic state, right before I hit sleep and I'm still awake, there are some realities there that are truly amazing, better than any drug trip I've taken. But it's taken a little bit of timing, so I certainly agree with you on all of this. And something else, I agree. Again, you mentioned you were in a similar situation in your van, sort of out of uh, out of money, out of luck, and all that, and you sort of had a vision or a realization where you met Hermes, the logos. When you want to tell the audience about that, because that's also a sync with something that's happening with me.
2: Sure. Absolutely. Um, so for me, you know, I was, I was raised Protestant Christian, uh, was some, some sort of Methodist, I guess you could say. Uh, so I have a, a deep appreciation for, uh, Christianity, uh, specifically esoteric Christianity, like uh, I like a lot of Rosicrucianism and whatnot. But um, I don't identify as a Christian because I think that there are just certain things that, um, I don't know, seem to be the cornerstones of Christianity that I find, I don't mean to insult anybody, but I find to be a little bit irrelevant. Um, uh, like, the the resurrection, there's so much emphasis on things that don't seem to be uh, very productive or helpful to people. And that goes for a lot of religions in general. So um, that being said, I've always, as I've grown older and gotten into this esotericism, I've deeply resonated with Hermeticism because it it seems to be uh, it's similar to Buddhism in this, right? It seems to be pretty open with the fact that it's a like a heuristic philosophy, so to speak. Uh, something that um, does not shy away from mysticism or spiritualism, but remains a l- much more practical and um, m- methodical. I guess you could say it's very more scientific, and there seems to be like more control methods involved because Hermes is the god of. Uh, of, uh, he's the messenger God. He's the God of, um, like the language and, um, and, um, communication in and of itself. And so, uh, whereas I think, so in terms of the logos, that's kind of how I break down, uh, that's what seems to me to be what you could call like the psychological holy trinity. Now, uh, uh, three is certainly a magic number, but I think that in the instance of Christianity, I think there's a huge, huge, uh, disservice, like I couldn't even emphasize enough the disservice done um to the divine feminine in in the Abrahamic religions in general. Um so that that's another that's another problem I have with with something like the Abrahamic religions, because that you're missing a crucial piece of the puzzle. It doesn't count that you shoe it you shoehorn in Mary uh with um you know certain prayers and stuff. It's just it's not enough. Um, and it's, it's psychologically incorrect, uh, evolutionarily speaking, uh, as, as far as the evidence appears to me. And so the logos, the, it would be, you know, some people will call it like the holy guardian angel. It's that cognitive, um, transpersonal ideal. It's that thing that, uh, that you strive to be in your cognitive experience whereas the uh, the great mother and father are more the the feminine representing the unconscious and the masculine representing the conscious And we can get into that more later but in terms of these logos um you know i think that um the other things that fit into this traditional category would be christ or buddha or, uh, or krishna there's others um plenty of others um i think that you know, while I well I don't agree with everything that Joseph Campbell wrote about. I think that his whole monomyth thing uh bears a lot of weight. I do uh I, I he was he was definitely a pioneer in this kind of research. So um during this uh this existential crossroads where I found myself pretty destitute in an RV uh working for a place to park in a a, a wildlife uh park essentially. I um, I realized that uh, dreams weren't going to be direct enough anymore. And I had already um, tried to do some, some divination work with the uh, great mother and father. And I realized that I hadn't really highlighted enough of my own personal uh, position to all of this stuff. And that's where the Logos comes in. So during this moment of crisis, I um i sit down and summon hermes and what do i mean by summon i mean we're talking about something like uh solomonic magic here uh where i'm not dealing with the the greater or lesser keys of solomon i think a uh, a like drg and uh, uh well like solomon really laid a lot of the esoteric groundwork for this kind of stuff and um you know i looked into uh the goetia and uh, read the greater and lesser keys and all these things. And, um, um, you know, I also, while I don't endorse Anton LaVey, uh, because he seemed to be a bit of a sociopath in his personal life. Um, you know, the mechanics of a lot of his work are very interesting and very sound. Um, the guy took his research to some unnecessary, misanthropic extents but in terms of the mechanics of what he's doing I mean, he talks about hypnosis and these mystical states of consciousness uh i mean he's he the it's very scientific and uh, and pretty well articulated so so these are the kind of things i'm coming at um yeah i'm I, i'm sitting there, so when i say summon Uh, we're not uh, like, it's not like I'm hallucinating and I'm seeing this God in front of me or anything. It's hypnosis. We're working with the, uh, the hypnotic mechanisms of the psyche and using psychological priming, uh, with incense and candles, uh, sigils and prayers and hymns. And, uh, it's almost like an inception where you're, uh, traversing, you're using the kicks to traverse the levels of the dream. And you, you know, you're, you're pulling yourself down. You're going, uh, you, you're taking the dive going deeper into the unconscious mind. And there's, um, a state of suspended disbelief. Like what you said, uh, where like you smile at the unconscious mind and it smiles back. And there's also that old saying, like the inverted version of that, like you stare at the abyss and the abyss stares back. Mm-hmm. These things are very true. And, Um, you can't really have this type of two-way process unless you allow it to happen. Um, So when I say like a state of suspended disbelief, similar to like experiencing good art, a good movie or something, I'm not saying necessarily placebo. um, Although, you know, that brings us into the concept of what even is placebo, because there's plenty of evidence to show now that, placebo works clinically, even when people know it's a placebo. So placebo is going to be a pretty throwaway term before long. It's already becoming that because it's pretty, uh pretty groundless. You were not really, um it doesn't penetrate to the heart of the question. And the heart of that question is not placebo, it's hypnosis. And and hypnotic triggers and suggestions and that's what the mystics of antiquity were doing that's what this adaptation process is and it seems to be um or it absolutely is operating with the same uh neurological mechanisms as the dream process itself so these things are uh coming from the same place psychologically and evolutionarily they're coming from the same pressures and um and mindsets so
1: well said yeah very cool and uh, again why it's a sink anthony is uh the god hermes has been on my mind and i had a realization in fact it wasn't even a realization it's a a missive that came from very uh material or physical places telling me that now we are officially entering the age of hermes with all this stuff going around us and as you write, you talk about chaos theory and you say, well, chaos theory is ruled by the god Hermes.
2: Yeah, and I, I've, I haven't ever come across anyone who has said something quite like that, but, um, you know, I'll die on that hill. I think it's absolutely true <laughs> because uh, the very nature of uh, the Hermes archetype, uh, being the messenger, is essentially, you know, Order out of chaos, this old Freemasonic creed. Um, And uh, in the long run, so I sit down and um, I say the prayers and hymns and light the incense and uh, uh, cleanse the air. uh, And I have a conversation with Hermes. You know, I'm it, it actually in retrospect, I wasn't thinking of it like this at the moment, but it was almost like. Like uh interview with the vampire, you know, where like they're they're sitting in this like hotel room having this interesting conversation. It's pretty low-key. There's not really anything going on. They're just meeting in this anonymous room. And uh Hermes comes in with um, it's actually Thoth. He comes in with a bird head and everything. And um, um, I've always been told that it's important when you're doing these things, you know, there's certain control methods and and steps, you know, checks that you want to mark off. You want to ask who you know it, it so in this case if i'm talking to hermes i want to ask if it is hermes and uh so I, I asked him if it was thoth because that's how i summoned him in my mind um and i'm deep into the hypnotic state at this point and he says no and then pulls off his bird head and it's uh it's a greek and he's like call me hermes and then we we talk some more and um um long story short in the end uh along with helping me through some things he Tells me to write this book in the long run. And it makes it very clear that I'm not some, not that I thought I was a chosen one or anything to begin with, but it makes it very clear, you know, I, I'm not anybody special, you know, because this isn't some supposed to be some sort of Aleister Crowley ego trip. Um, It's just coming to terms with who you are and, um, what Jung would call the individuation process or this sacred alchemical marriage. And it's not enlightenment either. It's just the, the fertile soil to plant the seeds from there. Cause you, you, you know, um, alchemy goes hand in hand so often with these, these gardening metaphors and um you know, working with the earth and tilling the soil. And uh, it really couldn't be more spot on the, the, the psyche is the same way so when you're when i say well, i feel like i can say with uh, a degree w- with plenty of certainty um i i have achieved this state of individuation and that's it's not enlightenment that's just me having taken the steps to um enrich the soil as much as i can and there's always more to be done i'm certainly not done with any process i just have healed uh i've repaired the bridges between uh, the conscious and unconscious a bit more. So now I have more of a functioning street. um, And that's, sometimes people are lucky and they have a nice hand of cars that they're dealt in life and they don't have to do many repairs to that two-way street. And sometimes people really do. And there's a whole hell of a lot of repairs that need to be done. And, you know, it's, uh, well, I mean, to be blunt, you can't can't repair them until you start to um, observe them. You know, you can't just ignore them.
0: Anthony, um, I was wondering have you run into any um of the divine feminine uh personalities, archetypes and so forth in your um in your metaphysical travels and communications?
2: Yeah, absolutely. That's a that's a great topic to touch on. Uh that becomes a bit of a climax in the book and in my own personal experiences. So um this this uh, this woman I kept seeing in my dreams um you know, we had a relationship for a while and it died out and I kept having these dreams and they were different situations, but, um, it was all the same recurring motif that I had in the dream months before I even met her and I was chasing her. You know, she wanted me to follow her. She was motioning me and, and laughing the whole time, but it was extremely frustrating for me because I could never catch up to her. And I didn't know how to resolve it. And um, she came uh, most poignantly as a mermaid. And this is where I started to catch on to the siren motif. Um, and we can get into that later, what the siren means archetypally. But suffice it to say for now, it's essentially um, the, the feminine projection of uh, of the shadow. And... Uh The worst case scenario of a, sh- of the shadow being, you know, something like sleep paralysis and best case scenario, as I lay out in the book being Virgilian, you know, uh, Virgil, the guide that, uh, the Roman poet that guides Dante through hell and purgatory. Um So the shadow isn't, isn't evil in and of itself. It denotes the unknown, which can be evil potentially. Um, and so for me, there was this state of existential crisis as I was trying to find this woman and catch her in my dreams. And, um, it took me, uh, through the extents of the book to come to this realization that, um, this was not something that was my enemy. Uh, some things are your enemies, but this one was not. And you have to go through steps to kind of verify that. And you, it's not just a, it's not an easy question to answer it's something that you have to really really research but it's certainly something that can be answered uh, with a little bit of observation and so for me i realized that what i was chasing this whole time was this divine feminine aspect of the psyche it's something that i had been severed from for too long and something that had compounded a lot of my um my problems in the past at the time with you know anxiety and depression and even like disassociation, you know, having difficulty feeling things at all, not in some sociopathic or psychopathic way, in a way that just completely muted me. And uh, in the long run, uh, the more I looked into these dreams and tried to do actual dream work, um, I ended up sitting down uh, the same way that I described uh, summoning Hermes. I summoned the great mother. The divine feminine, and uh-huh. yeah, and I—it I, was a very honest conversation where I—I I asked her different things about my personal life um, regarding this woman and and what the nature of these dreams were, and and the nature of, um, the the ways that I had severed my relationship to this aspect of myself and how it had carried uh, in many ways through generations throughout my family, which is a pretty common thing. I mean, I think any given family has those things. And that was one big thing that she highlighted for me is noticing these recurring patterns of, uh, neurosis for, for lack of lighter term, uh, throughout my family and how there had been this inertia, uh, behind a lot of my psychological situations. And, um, it takes effort to, uh, kind of, uh, pump the brakes on that inertia, but it's certainly doable and it's something that's necessary. And, uh, that was the, that was the real beginning of, um, a lot of catharsis for me. Uh, and it was, uh, uh, it was, it was extremely profound to say the least. And it's not something that is, um, it's something, in my opinion uh that the evidence shows that this is highly achievable for anybody i mean I'm not doing anything special here i'm not i'm not i don't have any uh like advanced powers or anything this is this is a very human experience you know mysticism being um in the scholarly definition of this transpersonal state of consciousness where um you uh, you become more than yourself, and the only way to really psychologically perceive that is the presence of the other. You know, however far you want to take that is up to you, whether you want to call that like just merely a psychological projection or you want to say that there's something heavier backing it up. Um, the This mystical, this transpersonal state where you're exiting yourself in a way and entering into something new uh, for the better, demonstrably, tangibly for the better. Um, that's, it's, it's something anybody can do. And that's probably something that we all do at least once a night in our dreams, whether you remember it or not.
0: Yeah. Right.
1: And Anthony, it seems you've gone on an incredible journey, overcome a lot, fixed a lot, and you continue to do so, but you've done this basically with just, again, these, uh, archetype these archetypes manifesting in the world. Through speaking through your subconscious, to heuristics as you talk about, you've never had like a, a physical teacher or someone to help you out, or you've just been going solo all this time.
2: Um, more or less solo. I have had some people help point me in good directions. Um, when I went to military school, I had a family friend that I met up with, or he met up with me once a week, and. He was a pretty uh esoteric kind of person, really into philosophy and he turned me on to uh, Chinese Taoism, so that was a pretty big entry for me um, and he really um it wasn 't like a classic mentorship where he was showing me the ropes he was definitely actively pointing me in um in directions that I really ran with and then from there, I actually met uh, some of his friends, and this is an older dude, like you know a retired police officer. So I, uh, through him I met some interesting uh spiritualists and I even met a 32nd degree freemason who helped point me in some further directions but no no formal consistent uh tutelage or anything like that. Yeah, pre- you
1: met uh you met Jan Irving. He's in your book. Oh yeah, I I a past guest of mine.
2: <laughs> oh really?
1: Yeah, he's been on before he did his pivot, his own pivot. He was uh, on the guest about four or five times. I think last time I had him was when he was uh, moving against Theogens and all that, and exposing Terence McKenna. And you know how what happens, and right, once yeah. in a while he'll go on my Facebook page and go, "Gnosticism is a fraud," and that's all I oh, hear from. But I still, I still follow him. I think I like his ideas, and he's on his own path. Good for him.
2: Right? Yeah, I I couldn't agree more with that. Um, I haven't talked to him in a while because. Uh, although I did interview him, um, and we did have a bit of correspondence for a period of time. Um, yeah, I don't think, <laughs> I don't think he would have many good things to say about my material just because no. yeah, uh, as of, um, as you know, his, he's pretty much done a complete 180. So I don't know. I don't. There's not really any point in, um, getting his opinion on it. Cause I already know, but for whatever it's worth, you know, like I really do respect the guy and uh, I've always had good dealings with him, and I find his information to be pretty interesting. Um, and, yeah. yeah. So I just wish that he would, uh, he would scale it back a little bit because I feel like, um, you know, I'm nobody special, but, I, but the, the material in my book is enough to show that there's, genuine humanistic value to these things um and i think jan i think jan got um got shook a little bit when he realized all the uh disinformation in the psychedelic community and whatnot and um because there is some you know there's disinformation everywhere Not everywhere yeah and, and and he just he felt like he got burned i don't want to speak for him or anything but it seems like he felt like he got burned and and just doesn't really want to deal with any sort of that mystical side of things anymore, which is unfortunate.
1: Yeah, so, but uh, again, each of us has our own path and uh, hopefully you'll find plenty of mysticism in Greek Orthodoxy, so I know <laughs> you can find it there. So again, to each his own. And you were talking about the sirens. We definitely wanna expand on that one. I think my friend Chris Knowles will be interested. Uh, it seems uh, there you tie in the sirens with uh, the powers of fate.
2: Yeah, um there's actually um a bit of evidence to suggest that that's not um uh just some fanciful idea I had on my own. Um uh Plato talks about that a bit in uh at the end of the Republic and the more you look into the siren uh and its presence in Greek culture Uh, the more you see that it was actually a lot more, it wasn't just something that, uh, you know, Homer wrote about, it was something that actually affected the daily life of the Greeks. And it was more or less like the other side of the coin to the sleep paralysis phenomena. And they considered it to be this um, disturbing, almost daymare, you know, something that more often than not happened during the day. And something that, uh, scholars sometimes attribute to um like side effects of heat stroke and stuff like that, like falling asleep in the sun on accident and having these these strange surreal dreams of uh like ominous bliss, I guess you could say uh something that um seems very uh, existential and divine and something that seems like he really couldn't go wrong with but uh, like the song of the siren, but lo and behold, you follow it and you topple off your ship into the water and find yourself swimming to the shore of the siren where um, the legend goes, you spend the rest of your life just waiting uh, for some sort of uh, acknowledgement from the siren and and there you will die. Uh, and there's the bones of men um, who have spent God knows how long um, uh, as, as Homer describes it. So the in terms of archetypes, uh the siren is uh is that thing that's why it's not good to follow your bliss sometimes i'm not saying don't be happy and don't uh don't have uh you know a, a sense of contentment and even bliss i guess uh, as a goal but to follow that wholeheartedly is a recipe for disaster just like nihilism is a recipe for disaster they're ju- they're both just going in the opposite Uh, directions and meeting up at the same point and it's all uh unproductive so uh, for me you know like i had to realize that this uh this chase the following of the song of the siren was uh was the problem that i had to begin with it wasn't i wasn't ever going to find the end of the chase i had to realize what the chase was representing and and get a little more meta from there so um the yeah, the the whole follow your bliss thing can be can be dangerous, just like um dabbling with Ouija boards could be dangerous, you know. So uh and that, that brings us into which is another uh what I would consider crux of the the book's material is understanding the intention uh, behind these archetypes. You know, are they good, uh bad, or in between? And Um, that's why you have to do your due diligence. And that's why this is like a quote unquote hero's journey, because it's not straightforward and you have to be on your toes. But that's why, you know, that's why we have faith. Uh, that's why there's this quote unquote sort of suspended disbelief, because if you don't have ideals, uh, and and altruism and love in your heart, then, then this is all going to fall apart from the get go.
1: Very cool, and I certainly highly recommend this book. I really enjoyed Dive Manual Empirical Investigations of Mysticism. But we are at the end of an excellent interview. First, I'd like to say, Vance, thanks for uh, keeping us company on this dive down into the waters of the unconscious.
0: Very good. I'm surfacing now, and uh, I'm very happy to hear everything I've heard, and it's been nice to meet up with you here, Anthony, on and by Gnostic Radio.
2: Yes, indeed. And, yeah. Uh, uh, thank you very much both for having me. It was a pleasure to meet you, and I agreed. I had a lot of fun during this conversation. So I hope uh, I hope the listeners uh, got something out of it. And uh, yeah, let me know if um, you ever want to do this again sometime. We don't have to just talk about the book. We can talk about all sorts of different stuff. So this was great. Thank you.
1: Yeah, yeah. Look forward to the next time. We'll we'll find many other topics to expand and have a good time. Absolutely. And there you have it, my beloved True Seekers. Let's continue to get mystical in our second part with this engaging interview with Anthony Tyler. In the next part, Anthony discusses why the concept of bliss is not as good as the mystics and Easterners have painted out to be, and beware Joseph Campbell. He shares the idea of the hungry ghost and how it's relevant to today's modern culture. We'll get into the myth of Lilith and Samuel as well as different angles on the tree of life. Anthony will get into the shadow people some more and get into the legend of Faustus and Mephistopheles. We'll shoot the shit on Carl Jung and Philemon in the Red Book. John Keel and UFOs, and even contemplate on the concept of free will. And more. So become an AB Prime member patron at Patreon for the full mystic exploration. As well as many other cool bonuses that include all past shows in their entirety. Just go to the God Above God Dead Cam or message my ass. And if you've got holes in your pockets due to the monkey shines of Archons, let me know and I'll give you any show on the Casa. Please continue to help me grow this Red Pill Cafeteria. We need Gnosis more than ever and we've only just begun reaching those who need to wake up. Those who need to have their eyes open. You won't find this high-quality Gnostic and Hermetic wisdom or guess in their unique insights anywhere else in cyberspace or even space. As mentioned in the intro, I'm working on tangible Gnostic rituals and magic for this year to grow this venture and help you out more. More to come in the future. Divided we stand, together we rise. Thanks for being here. Thanks for being yourself. Your true self. Hello and goodbye, as always.